0: We're in the fifth week of a series that we're calling Connecting the Dots. And what we've been doing in this series is we've been really kind of exploring what it takes. If I'm going to be honest, I feel like I explain what we're doing in this series differently every week. But it's really still coming together. Uh, We're explaining how we can love well. And today, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 and exploring that together. But it is February. I don't know if you know that. But it's February, praise the Lord. I know that some of you felt like January was like three months long. And for me, January just went straight by. I had some people tell me it went by too quickly. Those people cannot be my friends. I cannot wait until January is over every year. Just bring on the spring. But it's February, and we call this the love month. At least the first two weeks of it is. Like once Valentine's Day is over, we all forget about love but Valentine's Day is coming up pretty quickly. And of course, there's all these love quotes I've been seeing and hearing. And I heard this love quote recently this week, and I thought it was profound. So I had to research where it actually come, came from. And it came from a book that was written in the 1800s by Doskovsky, who is a Russian writer. And the book is called The Brothers Karzov. And in this book, part of this book, there's this rich, wealthy woman that goes and talks to a monk and she's talking to this monk and she says, how is it possible for me to know God or even know that God exists? And the monk tells her that God is love. And so in order to get close to God, in order to experience God, you have to put love in practice. And she tells this monk that she often daydreams about giving up her life of wealth. And instead, she wants. sometimes she dreams about living a life that's devoted in selfless service to others. That's what she wants to do. But she says that dream quickly fades when it crosses her mind how ungrateful people are. It crosses her mind that when she brings people soup, they'll complain that it's too cold. When she gives them bread, they'll complain that it's not fresh enough. That when she makes them a bed, they'll complain that it's too hard. And she confesses that she cannot bear that ingratitude and that thanklessness so that dream quickly fades. And what that monk says to her is that quote I heard this week. He says, love and practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love and dreams. Love and practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love and dreams. Jesus was once asked an interesting question. It says in Matthew 22, starting in verse 36, it says, Teacher, which is the greatest, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. At the center of Jesus's message when he walked on earth is that our love for God is evidenced on how well we love others. And that's why some of us, we're still Christians. Despite, despite the fact that the church has been hijacked and thrown under their bus, we, we still believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And Paul puts it this way in Romans thirteen eight. He says, "Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And Jesus is at the center of our faith. And at the center of our faith is the most loving act of all time that included a kind of love that included pursuit. Jesus was pursuing us. It included sacrifice. Jesus died the death that we deserve. And that grace and that love was on display on the cross. And that's what we all want. We all want a life that is demonstrated in love. John, who was one of Jesus's closest friends, that later in John's life, after Jesus resurrected from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, John writes this in 1 John four twenty. he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, loving well is the goal of the Christian life. Loving well is the goal of the Christian life. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. We say that, we feel that, man, we even sing that. We believe that theologically, but sometimes it begins to break down because love and practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love and dreams. And what this series has been about is connecting the dots from love and dreams to love and practice. How do we get from the point that we say we say we believe in Jesus and actually acting it out, actually applying it to the deep areas of our life that we're afraid to let anyone go into, much less even ourselves? How do we connect those dots? That's what we've been doing. And we can imagine, we can imagine what it would be like to love our life group, to love our families well, to love our church well, to love our town well, to even to love our enemies well. But again, love and practice is really hard. It's harsh, it's dreadful. And one of those reasons why that so few of us can love on that kind of level is because most of us apply biblical truth to the relationship skills we learned while growing up through osmosis. We, we learned what maybe love is, uh, through our family. And then we hear this biblical truth and we apply it to that. And that's not quite what's going on. So case in point, some of us heard uh, speak truth in love. So speak truth in love. And what that's turned into is you are an incredibly blunt and rude person that speaks out loud your assumptions about other people's intentions. You just walk up to them and you'd be like, how dare you? How could you? And that's who you are. And when somebody approaches you and be like, why are you doing that? And you're like, well, I speak truth in love. Speaking truth in love is boldly declaring what you think and assume about other people's uh, intentions. Where'd you learn that? And you might be like, well, I learned that from growing up. I learned that in my family. Or we apply peacemaking. The way that we apply peacemaking is to avoid conflict At all costs, we sweep things under the rug, we deflect, we run away, and we all try to not rock the boat, but Jesus never calls us to be peacekeepers. He calls us to be peacemakers, and those are vastly different things. But you learned to avoid conflict because that's the way your family did it. They avoided conflict. In fact, if you brought conflict up, you were almost punished for it because you rocked the boat we apply getting rid of bitterness, rage and envy by unfollowing people on Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and we're like there we I did it. I got rid of all anger, rage and envy because I, that's what I did. And the reason why I know that you do that is because I've done all of that. And the end result is our inability to live out the theology about love that we say we believe because we're not applying it right. We don't love much like Jesus did and we don't truly love any differently than the culture around us. We make it seem as though people have to earn our love. And what we've been learning the last five weeks is skills that help us live out that Christian theology of love in real and tangible ways. And today we're talking about two of those skills, one skill that you can stop and one skill that you can start. And so we're talking about stop mind reading and we're going we're to talk about start clarifying your expectations, so, you can stop mind reading and you can start clarifying your expectations. So, first, we're gonna talk about stop mind reading. What I mean by that is stop assuming things about others, stop jumping to conclusions, and, and communicate what you're expecting. If we say we love others, this is an extremely practical way that we can do that. And I wanna try and experiment on you. I love experimenting on you, it's a lot of fun. You should try it sometime. But in 1944, these two scientists got together and they put together a film. And I want to show it to you, and I just want to get your, your, your thoughts on this. Um, so I'm going to let it run for a little bit here. It's an old film, okay? Calm down. Maybe. There it is. All right. Okay. All right. What's going on? What is happening? What even is this? And so these, these scientists would show people this film, and of all the people they asked, what is this? I want you to think in your mind, what is going on here? And you might come up with an elaborate story. I asked somebody on the worship team this morning, what's going on here? And they said, well, this is a SWAT team breach gone wrong. Somebody didn't sweep their corners, and they've breached it, and it's just, it's, 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 it's a mess, Uh, If you look at the comments on YouTube, somebody's like, well, this is an angry father meeting his daughter's boyfriend for the very first time. That's what's going on here. Uh, some other people were like, well, this is obviously the circle is the warden. Uh, and he's introducing a new prisoner to a jail cell, and the big triangle is Big Bubba J, and, uh, and he's angry at homie J Slice Money, and, and that's what's going on in this. When I first watched it, I was angry at the big triangle. Like, what is your problem? You need therapy. And so, only one person out of everybody that these scientists showed this to got it right. And and the correct answer is these are shapes moving along a two-dimensional plane. And that's it. But everybody else tells themselves a story to make sense of what it is that they're seeing. And that's what we do. We like to tell ourselves these stories. And we see shapes. And because they're shapes, we imagine that these are humans with deep interpersonal lives. They're just like going through stuff. And because the way that human beings try to explain things that they don't understand almost unconsciously without even knowing that it happens is we begin telling ourselves stories. And these stories that we tell ourselves about situations that we don't understand or not are part of have huge implications on our ability to love other people well. Because we're coming up with stories to make sense of the world. And this is simultaneously a beautiful thing. And one of the main reasons why so many of us have problems in our relationships is because we make up stories about why so-and-so looked at us the way that they did, about why they didn't text us back right away, about why they haven't responded to my birthday invite yet. We make up these kinds of stories about what that group of people are in the corner talking about. And let me tell you what they're talking about. It's me. And so we make up all these stories about our families, our spouses, our coworkers, our friends, even our pastors. And I appreciate the texts and phone calls I get every now and then where it's like, hey, I heard this. Is this true? Can you explain this? You know, I might go to a grocery store and I leave Ingalls and you leave too. And, you, and I end up at Walmart and you're at Walmart. Next thing you know, you're thinking that I avoided you in Ingalls and decided I was going to shop at Walmart because you were at Ingalls. And then you stalked me over to Walmart. Is that what went down? And it was just, it's just weird. And none of those stories are true. And sometimes I look around, I'm like, I haven't seen that family in a while. What did I say? Did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Was it something I didn't say? Was it something I didn't do? Did I not show up at a super significant event in their life and I come off being super needy and like approaching them and be like, what happened? What's going on? They're like, dude, we were on vacation. That's it. We were on vacation for like a week and then we got COVID for 17 weeks. That's why we haven't been to church in, in a long time. But I'm always telling myself a story. When somebody posts something online, I can't tell you how often I think they posted that knowing that I would see it. They posted that so that I would see it. That's a direct affront to something that I said on Sunday, and that's why they posted it. And I'm telling myself a story about that. And these stories we tell ourselves, again, have huge impacts on our ability to love each other well. We have to decide. We're going to stop mind reading. We're going to verify this story we're telling ourselves to a person in person instead of in our minds. In Proverbs, the ancient Hebrew book of wisdom has a lot to say about this. It says in Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. In Proverbs 18.13, it says, if one gives an answer for before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In 1815, it says, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. The ninth commandment that God gives his people is this. God says in Exodus 2016, he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What was going on here is God is restructuring this community of slaves that just got out of Egypt through the exodus. He's restructuring them to make them a community, a nation of priests that is going to show the world what God is like. And he's giving them some baseline ways. If you behave this way and don't do these things, your community is going to flourish. He's telling them this is how this community flourishes. And that's where we get the Ten Commandments. And the Ninth Commandment shows us that a flourishing human community depends on our ability to tell the truth depends on our truth-telling. We live in a world right now where the truth is relative, where if you have to lie to get something that you want, man, mad respect, high five. But a community begins to fall apart when we stop depending on our ability to tell truth. And what this commandment is telling us is that when we give testimony about another person, we have to resist our temptation to distort reality. We must speak the truth about them or we condemn an innocent person. You see, the Ten Commandments is, is, is essentially condemning the most extreme form of any particular sin. So when it says, thou shalt not murder, that's the most extreme form of hate. When it says, don't commit adultery, that's the most extreme form of sexual sin. And when it says to us in the Ninth Commandment th- that th- what it's doing for us is it's condemning, it's telling us to not tell the deadliest lie. And the deadliest lie is one that condemns an innocent person for a crime they didn't commit. And when we jump to conclusions about other people, we're, we're saying things that likely are not true. When we assume what we know something about what somebody did, and we tell ourselves a story about something somebody, uh, somebody else did based on our opinions and our observations, we are risking believing or even telling a lie about that person that condemns them. And that is bearing false witness. We especially do this when that other person has hurt us or disappointed us. When they've hurt us or disappointed us, man, we go straight to an assumption, straight to some kind of weird story. And when we do that, we enter an alternate and false world. And when you enter into an alternate and false world, you're in danger of even alienating yourself from God because God only exists in what is true and what is real. And we wreck relationships by creating needless confusion and conflict. So we need to stop mind reading because mind reading and assumptions can absolutely destroy lives. And nearly every relational problem that I've had in my life has had its root in me just making assumptions about people. Had its root in stories that we tell ourselves about other people. Assumptions that were not communicated by me to others or from others to me. And a beautiful example of this is Mary the mother of Jesus. It's a beautiful and moving example. Mary gets pregnant outside of marriage. You can imagine in that kind of society, she's pregnant and she's not married yet. What people are saying about her, what people are saying about Joseph, yet at the same time, it doesn't say that she's freaking out about it. She just ponders these things in her heart, even though this is what's going on, when, when it says that Joseph plans to divorce her quietly, you have to believe that that was common knowledge or it wouldn't have been in the Bible. And at the same time, it doesn't say that, that Mary harbored resentment towards Joseph for trying to divorce her quietly for getting pregnant outside of marriage. That doesn't happen. And then later when she's nine months pregnant after a super long journey back to Bethlehem and when the, and she gets there tired and maybe sweating and smelling and just needing a cold or a warm bath. She gets to the inn and the innkeeper says, I have no room for this pregnant woman. She doesn't go all caring on him and say, I need to speak to the manager. She doesn't leave a one-star review. She doesn't do a TikTok video like rage bait type thing about the innkeeper in the inn. All we know is she just, pondered these things in her heart and then later shortly after Jesus is born they go to the temple to consecrate little infant baby Jesus they sacrifice two doves and there's this man there Simeon and he's been told by the Holy Spirit that he's not going to die before he sees the Messiah he sees baby Jesus and he's like this is the Messiah and he runs up and he tells Mary this this child is going to be pierced and a sword will pierce through your own soul and Mary's like, wow, that is so beautiful. Thank you so much. That's so great. I'm going to sew that and put it on a pillow in his crib. No. I mean, imagine what happens. She doesn't freak out and be like, you're weird. She ponders these things in her heart. That's what she does. And I, I, she doesn't call any, anyone who would listen about it. She just ponders it in her heart. She, she could have convinced herself that there was something wrong with her, that there was something wrong with little baby Jesus. Something wrong with other people, but she appears to demonstrate great restraint and not telling herself negative stories about others. And her ability to not take these things personally, I believe, was a secret part of why her spirituality was so great. So we have something that we can stop doing. We can stop mind reading, stop making assumptions. And there's something that we can start doing. We need to start clarifying expectations, Because unmet expectations wreak havoc on relationships. People leave jobs over unmet expectations. Churches split over unmet expectations. Uh, Couples divorce over unmet expectations. Families stop talking to each other. Friends stop talking to each other over unmet expectations. And here's the problem with our expectations. Number one is that they're unconscious. They're unconscious. The devious thing about unmet expectations is we often don't realize that we have expectations for people until those go unmet and we're angry about it. We don't even realize that they're there. They live and roll around in our subconscious until somebody disappoints us. When Malika and I first got married, uh, the biggest argument or tension we've ever had was over something you might consider small, but it was over the fact that I worked two years without taking a vacation. And I just, I didn't know how to vacation. I didn't know that that was a thing. We were young. We got married when we were 20. We had no money. I was looking at, like, we could take a vacation somewhere or I could buy a 60-inch television and have that forever. That's what I wanted. I want to spend my money on cool stuff. And then Malika was like, I don't feel like you love me. Because to her, the fact that I didn't have a vacation on the calendar meant that I would rather be at work than spending time with her. That I would rather have nice stuff like a television than going on a sweet trip with her and, and and growing to know and love each other better because we spent time together, and that I just my expectation was that yeah we'll take a vacation every Christmas, but her expectation was that we would spend time together throughout the year, that we would take time off, that we'd reflect on our relationship and each other, and it was kind of an unspoken ex- expectation of mine that maybe we wouldn't do those things to save money, and her expectation was let's spend all our money and go on a sweet trip, and I got to tell you she won. And uh, that's part of the reason we've been married nearly 20 years. So there you go. So they're often unconscious. Number two is they're often unrealistic. If I could be honest, they're unrealistic. The expectations that we have are these illusions that we have about people. We have these unrealistic expectations about our leaders, about our friends, about our life group, about our church, about our town. For example, we think a good friend or spouse or pastor should be available on a moment's notice, regardless of the time or the hour, to meet our needs immediately. And that's not realistic, but we just place those on people. Or well, we think that the church should be exactly like Acts chapter 2. We read Acts chapter two, 2, why isn't the church doing this? Why isn't the church making this happen? But if you read the rest of the Bible, if the church was like that, none of the rest of the New Testament would have ever been written. Because Acts chapter 2 happened, they didn't do those things. And so Paul had to write them all these letters. In fact, a few chapters later in Acts chapter 5, two people died because of their lies and hypocrisy. And the church is in a perfect place. If you look around, this is just a room full of sinners, of which I am the chief. That's what this is. We're not going to meet your expectations in those ways. So they're unconscious, they're unrealistic, and they're often unspoken. They're spoken. We often tell, we, we often never tell somebody about our expectations, but as soon as they don't meet our expectations, we're angry and we're hurt and we're disappointed, even though they had no idea that that was an expectation of ours. And then lastly, they're not agreed upon. They're just not agreed upon. You might have talked about it and you may have done one of those things where it's like, Hey, you would know be cool. It'd be cool if we went skydiving in March, and then March comes and goes and you didn't go skydiving so you're angry at that person. I and mean, all they did was respond to you with be, was like, yeah, that would be cool. But you never made a plan. They never said, yes, I will do that. But in your mind, it's like this expectation that you have for them that you're going to make this happen. It's unagreed upon. And we have... Passively aggressively set our expectations out loud, or even we've put them in writing, but we've never had an adult conversation with the other person where they agreed to that expectation. And expectations are only valued when they've been mutually agreed upon. Now, some of you are like, four things? This sounds like a lot of work. Let me just tell you, being an adult is a lot of work. That's what it takes. It is a lot of work. And some of us We didn't expect that. That was an expectation that adulting would be easy. And we see that the grass is greener on the other side. And it's greener on the other side because they put the work in. They're making that happen. And your expectations of your spouse, your friends, me as one of your pastors, me as a pastor for you, those things need to be expressed out loud. They need to be established. But for those expectations to be established, expectations must be conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon. And once you've done that, write these things down. Write them down and practice them. Like later, if there's a, some, something tense in a relationship right now, some relational strife, it's likely that one of these things is broken down. And let me just tell you, practice, practice, practice. It takes practice. And I know that's not how we do things. Typically how we do things is we go, man, I heard that. That moved me. I felt that and therefore I am that thing now. And that's not how it works. You have to practice it. You have to work on it so it becomes part of who you are. But I want to get kind of deeper and have this conversation, kind of an adult conversation uh, about some things. Uh, And one of those things is what happens when an expectation is unmet. When an expectation is unmet, like let's say your friend group has a movie night. And every Monday night, your friends come over for that movie. And one of your friends, two of your friends get married. And now they're not showing up. On, on, on movie night and that's egregious to you. That should have been part of their vows that they were gonna come to your house on Monday night every, every week for movie night. And, but now they're not able to meet that expectation. What happens when an expectation is unmet, this expectation needs to move to a hope and you can grieve the loss of it. So now instead of expecting your friend to be there on Monday nights, you can hope that they are and grieve the loss of having them sit in the corner and shoving popcorn up their nose every Monday night that you don't get to see that anymore. So it needs to move from an expectation to a hope. And maybe your friend felt like they couldn't say no. And if they can't say no to you, then it's not a request. It's not an expectation. It's a demand. Maybe they felt like they just couldn't say no to you. But here's one deep conversation I feel like we need to have is what happens when God doesn't meet our expectations? What happens when it's God who doesn't meet our expectations? All of us want to know what God is doing, when God's going to do it, and, and what it's going to look like when God is done doing the thing we need him to do. Because deep down what we really want is we want control of God. We say, God, I'll do this for you, I'll do that for you, but you're going to need to do this for, for, for me. I, I expect you to make me happy. I expect for you to make me stable. I expect that I'm not going to go through any suffering. And if I do, can I go through it all at one time? Don't just spread it out throughout my life. I just want to get this thing over with. But God is faithful. God is just and God is loving. But the way that God expresses his faithfulness, the way that we see his justice in our lives, the way that we see his love in our life become a reality is often not in the way that we thought it should go. In Mark chapter 5, there's this incredible story. It's an incredible story because it's an overlapping story. It's an intertwined story. There's lots of moving parts, and it has everything to do with expectations. It's a familiar story. We're going to read it together, starting in verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. Right there, Jairus is expressing an expectation Jesus, this is your basic miracle. It's gonna be super easy peasy. You're gonna lay hands on her, her health is gonna be restored. We're gonna move on with her life. It's gonna be great. And Jesus agrees to this expectation. In verse 24, it says, And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him, and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and it was no better, but rather grew worse." It says 12 years of invasive doctors checking her out, 12 years of her being ceremonially unclean according to Levitical law. She can't go into the temple, the center of social life. She can't make a right with God. She feels so outcast. She feels so alone. She is humiliated and she feels unclean. And it says in verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This is an expectation. What she wanted was her miracle. I'm just going to reach up behind him, touch his garment. I'm going to get my miracle and I'm going to get out of there. I'm going to be made clean in this moment. It's, it's an expectation she has. It's, it's unspoken. It's not agreed upon, but it's an, unex, it's an expectation nonetheless. I just want to get my miracle and get out. And she says, verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Sweet, that expectation is met. Her life has changed forever. She can get, join all the, the, the chess clubs, the, the sewing. I don't know what people it is that do at church. Our church isn't like the, the temple. But anyways, she can go back there and she can party with all those people. And it's awesome expectation met, I got my miracle and I got out. And verse 29 or verse 30, says, and Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. You can imagine being that woman in that moment, this is not the way I thought it was going to go down. Her face is red hot. She is blushing. She is filled with shame. She knows it's her. She's sweating. She's trembling. She's deeply afraid. She doesn't she's like panicking from the embarrassment in this moment. This is not what she was expecting. She wanted her miracle and to get out. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Listen, Jesus wants a relationship with you. That is his spoken expectation. He wants to know you. He's not content with you just trying to touch his robe and get your miracle and bounce. My hope and prayer is that you didn't come to church today to get your miracle. You came to church today to know Jesus, to get to know him because that's what he wants. He wants to look you in the eye. He wants to know you. He wants you to know that he knows your story. He wants to encourage you. He wants to bless you, and he wants to love you. And here's the other thing about the situation. I believe that Jesus knows who touched him. The Bible is full of Jesus knowing what the the Pharisees are thinking. He knows what they're thinking in their minds. And he responds to a question they didn't even say out loud. I believe Jesus knows who touched him. So not only is he spinning around causing a scene so that he can personally look this woman and eye and bless her. But I believe that he is stalling. And it's... It's almost like, Jesus, what are you even doing? Like you you were doing something for this other guy. Now you're causing this big scene. You're going around and it's like a circus happening. What's happening in this moment? Meanwhile, Jairus' expectations are also not being met. Because while Jesus is causing this scene and almost seemingly stalling and doing something that doesn't seem necessary, it says in verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher? Any further. And you can imagine what Jairus's face looked like. You can imagine in that moment his face just dropping. He was so close. He had the medicine, it was Jesus. All he had to do was get Jesus to his daughter and she would have been healed. Man, what if he would just, in that moment, just like fireman carried Jesus and be like, forget that woman, and like ran to his daughter. There were so many different things that could have gone so differently. Jesus, why did you have to take this time with this lady? She was already healed. She was healed. You should have just let her go. It was my daughter who needed healed. In verse 36, it says, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. you're wondering why he said don't tell anybody you can listen to last week's message about limits but none of these people got what they were expecting what the woman got was this reorientation from superstition and religion into actually having a relationship with her creator i mean she was just superstitious man all she needed to do was throw some salt over her shoulder and she would be healed and jesus was like no that's not what this is about i want a relationship with you. Jairus signed up for healing, but what he got was a resurrection. That's not what he was expecting. That's not what he wanted. God never meets our expectations. Sometimes he exceeds our expectations, and sometimes it takes a very long time to see how God exceeds our expectations. And we need to realize the expectations we have on God, and we need to live at peace, knowing that God's only motivation for us. As love, even though some of us are still waiting to be parents. Some of us are still waiting to be healed. Some of us are still waiting for God to provide for us in the unique way that we've been praying for. Some of us are still waiting for that child to come home. Some of us are still waiting for that family member to love Jesus the way that we do. And if we're honest, we're disappointed with where God has us right now. And we have to have a very real conversation with God We have to say to God, God, I release to you my expectations. I trust you. And I want a relationship with you. And I want our relationship to heal so that we can get back on this path and continue to grow together. And sometimes we have to go through the pain of death to see a resurrection. And that might be a really hard place for you to get even today because what seemed to be a message about how you treat other people And now it's become a message about you and God. And you never realized that you had all this stuff with God and that in fact you were hurt and disappointed because you had expectations for God. And God says we won't understand his ways. He says it takes trust. It takes surrender like the woman did, like Jairus did to the plan of God as we surrender our plans and our expectations to him. And maybe right now the Holy Spirit is bringing up something or someone you need to forgive. And you need to forgive them, not because of what they've done to you, but because of your expectations and your assumptions have just gone wild. Or maybe the Holy Spirit is revealing to you where you need to surrender control of your life and your expectations to God's greater plan for you. You need to take some time to have that adult conversation with God and make that right. And however that looks for you, God says this over you in Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We have to trust that. Let's pray together. Father, I pray in this moment, God, that many of us right now, some of us are seeing some tension in our relationships and our ability to love other people well, the way that you've called us to love, the way that the Christian life defines what love is. And if we're honest, the reason why that love has stopped is not because the source isn't perfect, but because there's a kink in the hose that was put there because of our expectations that we've put on other people, the assumptions we have about other people. God, I pray that we could be a people that have the hard conversations, that can say in honesty, I have these expectations, I have these assumptions. Will you forgive me for thinking that way about you, for being hurt and disappointed in you, even though I never voiced these things? And hey, can we have a talk about my expectations? God, in maybe a deeper way, I pray right now for those of us who, if we're honest, you haven't met our Expectations. God, I pray that we can get to a place of trust, a place of knowing that, God, you have not sinned against us, that you are full of justice, that you are full of faithfulness, that you are full of a love that even we don't understand and we only aspire to. God, and as those things are made real in our life, God, I pray that we would trust your plan. As even now we can look back at our life and say, That's not the way I would have planned it. I would not choose to go through that again. But if I had not, things would be wildly different for me. God, I pray that we could see your grace alive in our life as we have that conversation with you that we want to trust you. God, And I pray for that person in this room who for the very first time is hearing about the Christian life this way, is hearing about Jesus' deep and undying love for us, a love that the Bible tells us cannot be separated by height, death, nakedness, famine, angels, or demons. Nothing can come between the love that you have for us. God, I pray right now that they would begin a conversation with you. Conversation, the sincerity of their heart that sounds something like, God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe that what you did on that cross was for me because I mess love up. God, please forgive me. I wanna follow you. I wanna become more like Jesus. I wanna know you. I wanna go where you asked me to go. I wanna do what you asked me to do. And God, tomorrow when they fail, when they're not good at this, when they end up making assumptions about others and about you, God, that they won't run from you, they'll run to you because Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf and gave up that life, died in our place. We are dressed in his righteousness as he became our sin. God, I pray that somebody in this room right now for the very first time is getting saved, is getting redeemed, is being renewed and restored. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is Communion Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to apply this in a very real way. Uh, On your chairs this morning, you'll see one of these cups, these thingies. One day in the future, we might pass bread again. I don't know, that just seems really weird right now, but maybe. But for right now, this is how we experience the Passover, the communion together. And what this is, if if you're not yet a believer in this room, I would invite you to watch, maybe not participate. This is for the believers in this room. This is for us to remind ourselves, to realign ourselves with Jesus's mission here on earth and what it is that he actually did for us. So if you would, if you would peel back that first layer, you'll see a piece of unleavened bread. The Bible tells us that that last day before Jesus died, Jesus ate with his disciples. They were celebrating something called the Passover. Jesus grabbed the bread, He blessed it, he broke it and he gave it away, it's something Jesus often did. When it came to the loaves and the fish, he blessed it, he broke it and gave it away. and instead of that blessing and breaking it, things seemed to multiply. Jesus' body was blessed. I mean, he was God. He lived a perfect life, and it was broken. It was broken on that cross. He was whipped until he no longer looked like a man. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was stripped naked. He had a crown of thorns shoved into his head until it bled. He had his beard plucked out. He had nails that pierced his hands and his feet. And he was suspended in the air. He was broken because he drank the full cup of the wrath of God. Not one drop was left for you and I. And the Bible says it was for the joy set before him that his body, his brokenness would be multiplied through us, Christians, which means little Christ. People who aspire and have the audacity to say, we wanna love the way Jesus loves. And a high price was paid for us. So let's take a moment to pray among ourselves to make sure our hearts are in the right place. Then I'll pray for us together before we eat this bread. Father, we come to you as your children. We come to you in a deep trust for you. And God, right now, we wanna remember the body that was broken for us. We wanna remember the price that was paid on our behalf as Jesus took on all of our sin, past, present, and future for all of mankind that in that moment, God, it says that you turned away from Jesus for the first time in eternity. And he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because the first time ever, he knew what it was like to be covered in sin. And that sin died on that cross that day. And the sin in us is gone. We're so grateful for the price that was paid. Let's take and eat and remember that together. peel back that second layer. The Bible says that Jesus took around a cup of wine. There's a ton of symbolism in that. And he passed it around. He took a sip and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is a new covenant being made in my blood. In those days when uh, a young Jewish man would propose to a young Jewish girl, he wouldn't give her a ring. He would sip from a wine glass and pass her the wine glass. And if she sipped from it, that was her way of accepting his betrothal to be married, his proposal to be married to her. This is Jesus' new covenant being made in his blood. And that is a powerful thing. The old covenant was that grace and forgiveness was attached to a sacrifice we made in a temple somewhere. And now grace and forgiveness is made available to us every day, every moment, because Jesus is in us. We are the temple. And he is making us new from the inside out. He comes into a space that the world has slapped a label on and said, that is condemned. And he said, no, this place is pretty sweet. I I can see a future here. And he moves in and he renews it from the inside out. He restores us and he makes us beautiful and he will never abandon us. It's a new covenant that we often take for granted that Jesus is here and that the forgiveness and deep conversations we need to have are available to us moment by moment. Let's take and drink and remember that new covenant together. Father, we are thankful for your love for us. We are thankful that you are making all things new. And we are thankful that the full cup of the wrath of God was drank by Jesus. And now when you see us, you see him. There's not one drop left for me. We thank you for the way that you love us. Pray that you would help us to aspire and do the hard work to love others the same. Because love and practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love and dreams. We thank you for loving us that way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you made a decision to follow Jesus this morning, we'd love to know about it. Uh, We'll have some people up front that would love to pray for you today. You can tell me that you've given your life to Christ. You can put it on a connection card, make it a comment on Facebook, wherever, or YouTube, wherever you're watching this. And we would love to know that. With that being said, we have a lot to celebrate. We have a lot to worship. So let's stand and let's close in worship together.